Welcome to PCA One-on-One, Positive Coaching Alliance's podcast series where we talk with leading experts about how to develop better athletes, better people through sports. And now here's your host, Jim Thompson, PCA founder and CEO. So I'm very excited today to talk with David Epstein, an investigative reporter with ProPublica and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Sports Gene, Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance. Uh, David, thank you for um, sharing your wisdom with uh, Positive Coaching Alliance uh, coaches, parents, athletes who will be listening to this podcast. It's my pleasure. I mean, this is the it's just the kind of thing that's close to my heart, so it's a pleasure to be invited. So, um, my first book, which I wrote long ago, is called Positive Coaching: Building Character and Self-Esteem Through Sports. And my goal with that book was to change the whole way youth sports was done and course, I didn't quite do that. Um, what did you hope to accomplish uh, with uh, writing the sports gene? Did you have uh, big ideas about what the book would, uh, kind of impact it would have? To, to be honest, and I, and I hope this, this isn't disappointing, but, um, you know, I thought like my mother would buy a dozen copies and invite me to her book club, and that would be the end of it. Um, <laughs> and, and, and she did. That did happen. But, you know, I... I The book really developed organically out of my own interests stemming from uh, things that I'd seen as a sports enthusiast and also that I'd experienced as a competitor. And so really it was like 15 of my own deepest questions about sort of the interplay of nature and nurture um, in in expertise in sports performance and, you know, what the latest science could tell us about those. And and I thought it was going to be a little too in-depth on certain topics, I guess, to to achieve – you know, widespread readership. And also when I was going around to publishers, a lot of them were saying to me, well, where are you going to come down nature or nurture and what's going to be like sort of the advice coming out of it. And I really was sort of reticent um, to, to to say where I was going to come down because I didn't know the science yet. And I know that's not really how science works. So, so I I hate to say it, but I really didn't think it was going to get read much. Um, But, you know, I, I more had goals for it once I saw how it was being received and I added in, an afterword to it that's more like a new chapter, and that specifically with certain goals in mind actually relevant to youth sports. But the initial one, I just didn't think anybody was going to read it. So um, what is the, the relevance? I, I, have to, I just have to say that uh, my, my first book, Positive Coaching, I, I had grandiose dreams about it, and I like to tell people that my mom read it and my wife says she read it, but that was about it. <laughs> Um, so, so let's talk about uh, youth sports. Um, positive coaching. It took us about 15 years to boil down our mission statement to four words: better athletes, better people. Um, do you feel like uh, sports has gotten um, it's it's too far on the better athlete part of it, and not so much about the better person coming out of sports? Well, the, the short answer, yes. Um, and I'm going to give a longer answer, but the short one, absolutely. I mean, it, we talk about, I think we give lip service, and, and, and we, I don't mean you and me, because obviously we're, <laughs> we're maybe in a, in a minority that does something different, but uh, as, a, as a sports society, we pay lip service to all the ideals of sports, you know, um, uh, bouncing back from defeats, uh, gradual skill development in, in, in the interest of long-term goals, teamwork, et cetera, and yet we keep making our sports systems more and more exclusionary at a younger and younger age, right? So 
we now make you know we have to divide people up into the kids who are going to be advantaged and allowed to play sports with all the resources and the kids who get nothing like at age 7 there's a there's a U6 travel soccer team crud you know that sometimes meets across the street from me uh, in New York City and they're already you know being told hey if you don't if you're not on this team then you're not going to be able to go to the next one and so it seems to me that there's a proliferation of the kind of systems that actually make sports even more exclusionary so that those those great benefits we pay lip service to are are kind of confined to a smaller group of people. And beyond that, you know, the, the focus on better athletes, no doubt it's becoming more intense, but I think it's backfiring in a lot of ways. The afterword I added to the sports scene was all about this burgeoning uh, scientific literature that shows if specialization in a sport is too early, it's really counterproductive for skill development. In fact, the athletes who go on to become the most elite practice less early on in a technical manner less technical practice, and less focus on one sport early on than the athletes who, who plateau at lower levels. This, the, the most recent study showing this was done on German soccer players, where the ones who went up to the national level um, spent more time in play or implicit learning uh, early on and tried some other sports and became athletes first, and then soccer players later. They were exposed to soccer early, and they played a lot, but not highly technical coaching. And it's really compelling because they just won the World Cup, you know, so things worked out okay. And so I think in the pursuit of better athletes. We are making better 10-year-olds, um, but we're not making better 18-year-olds. I think we're sacrificing uh, even sport, even better athlete in what we think is the pursuit of better athletes. A researcher named Jean Cote at Queen's University in Canada has some pretty stunning data now that shows he, he takes odds ratios, the odds of becoming a pro athlete based on the size of a kid's hometown. And so a one means it's a normal chance, you know, three would be three times normal odds of making it to the pros. And in the smallest sizes of towns in the U.S., like 100,000 and down, uh, the odds are now, you know, from 10 to 20 or 30 times more likely that kids from those towns make it to the pros than kids from, from any of the classes of larger cities. And one of the things John's talking about is that those are the towns where kids are still allowed to have a sampling period, uh, as he and other researchers call it, where they can play a variety of sports early on, gain a variety of athletic skills, see what might fit both their psychology and their biology and then focus in later. And so I think we've gotten to the point where, you know, we're certainly not concerned about making better people, but even the attempt to make better athletes is really backfiring according to the scientific literature. So when I added the afterword and started speaking about that, then I definitely had a hope for um, the impact that the, that the platform of the sports scene had given me. So I added this afterword with a lot of intent of then trying to talk out about that. You know, I, I have some personal experience with that. I, I played high school football with a, a good friend named Brad Trum, and he was a little bitty guy. Uh, he was bussed in from a small town outside of the big town of West Fargo, North Dakota. And uh, he, he stayed on the team because we didn't have many kids. And then between his junior and senior year, he grew about four inches and put on about 20 pounds of muscle. He ended up playing uh, on a national championship football team at North Dakota State University. And he would have, I think your point is, and Cote's point is, in a bigger school, bigger town, he would have been uh, cut long ago. Exactly, exactly. That's that's one of the points. And the earlier selection is pushed. So the earlier selection and and funneling into a, into a single sport is pushed. The more likely you put the wrong, you match the wrong person with the with the wrong sport. And it's now pushed so early that basically coaches are just mistaking physical maturation. The kids that are starting puberty first, or even just uh, you know have have 
a birth date earlier in the year, so they're functionally a year older than the next seven-year-old. And so you're picking the wrong people and disadvantaging the people who are unselected so much that they become not viable for your your sports pipeline anymore. And there are some countries, especially Australia, that are trying to fight that, to deselect fewer people. Um, and they're doing it for performance reasons so that you can keep them being viable athletes and see what happens later. But I think it's having a good a social impact as well, you know, and, and so there's that selection that you mentioned, and then there's also just skill development. Again, what they're finding in Australia is that the more, the wider variety of um, uh, what they call attacking sports, which basically means where you have to learn to anticipate body movement, so things where you're, someone's guarding you or you're trying to get past them, you know, soccer, basketball, uh, volleyball, you have to get something past people, hockey, the more sports someone's played of those variety before age 12, the quicker they'll then pick up any subsequent uh, attacking sport that requires what they call anticipatory skills, the ability to read body movements and things like that. And so I think there's, you know, there's, there's not only the health message, because we know sports specialization early on is the, the best predictor of an adult-style overuse injury in a child. It's really funny because the second best predictor is family income, because only well, not funny, but only only the families that can afford private coaches and year-round travel and things like that are the ones that end up specializing to that degree. So it's like a it's like a health epidemic that hits well-off families, which is kind of unusual. But it also seems to be bad for skill development, which is a message that's just not getting through that people just won't believe because they want the best eight or ten-year-old and kind of sacrifice the best fifteen or eighteen-year-old for that in many cases. So what you're saying is, um, the, uh, well, let me let me back up. There's a lot of concern about the advantages that wealthy families get, kids from wealthy families get in terms of all the training and equipment and everything. You're saying that actually backfires if they uh, bring specialized coaches in too early. It backfires long term. So, again, it's, it's what you want to do if you want to win the 10-year-old championships. But the, the, the phrase that's coming out of uh, some skill acquisition experts' work now is learn like a baby, which basically means the best way to learn a skill is the way a baby learns. So when a baby learns language, they're tossed into the deep end. They struggle. They do trial and error. Uh, you know, they correct themselves. They, they mimic, et cetera. They play. And then only later, once they've learned implicitly, you know, with the fast parts of your brain that you need to execute skills without thinking too much, per se, uh, then you start teaching them grammar and the technical stuff, the systematic stuff. And it's turning out that's a good way to learn. That's the best way to learn sports skills, too, diving in, lots of play, implicit learning, and then the technical stuff later. And we've reversed that in many cases. And I know, you know, Cote, one of the things that he, he thinks that's part of what, um, you know, is causing this trend of uh, the kids who are in the cities where there's lots of technical coaches and they have to be technically proficient just to make the middle school team. It hinders their ultimate skill development. It's good when they're really young, but not for their long-term trajectory. The same the developmental pathway that makes the best 10-year-old isn't the one that makes the best 20-year-old. Wow. Uh, John John W. Gardner, who started the White House Fellows Program in Common Cause, who I was fortunate enough to have him as a mentor when I started Positive Coaching Alliance. He's since died, but he wrote a book called Self-Renewal, and he says exactly what you just talked about. I love that phrase, learn like a baby, that uh, when kids are one, two, three years old, they're learning at a rate that they never uh, maintain because as they get older, uh, there's perfectionisms coming in, and it's you know it's not okay to make a mistake, and and then uh, success becomes, in John's words, so precious that kids uh, don't want to take any risks. 
Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, obviously the brain is different when they're that young, but I think the principle still applies. And for anyone who's ever tried to learn a language, right, if you've ever started with technical training and then been immersed versus the reverse, it's a, it's a heck of a lot easier to, to sound like a natural if you've done immersion and then you start learning some technical things later. It's just turning out that that's, that's the best way to go in a, in a huge range of, of skills, you know, and I think, so I, th- I think sports is beyond how someone performs, beyond their team, beyond anything else, it's an exercise in how to learn things and how to learn new skills. Uh, and that, that's one of the greatest things I took away from my own. I mean, I had a sampling period early on, played football, basketball, baseball, high school, finally focused in on track and became a national-level competitor. But, you know, one thing I learned from all of that experience was how to go about trying to learn something and, and setting that longer goal and having that, you know, what I call vision of your future self that makes the incremental setbacks not seem like such a big deal. And I think that's really taken away when every step of what a youth athlete does is, is guided and prescribed. There's, I, I had a chance to look at some video of what's called the diaper division of the World Golf Championships. Uh, and it's kids you, from all over the world competing in golf. I think it's 10 and under, if I recall, um, or maybe under 10. It's around there. And what you see is the fathers standing behind the kids, telling them what club to use and exactly how to angle it and how to hit. And you're like... So basically they're taking away the entire cognitive part of the game and using their child as like a joystick, you know, and controlling them. I'm like, wow. what kind of learning experience is that? I just don't it's, – it's disappointing because I think it's really subvert sort of the, the possible uh, teaching, teachable moments in, in sports when you do something like that in, in the interest of just trying to win the 9-year-old or 10-year-old championship. You know, I've often said the best youth sports movie ever made was Searching for Bobby Fischer. Did you ever see that movie? Mm. It, it, not only have I it, seen that movie, but I, I befriended Josh Waitzkin recently, who is, it, who's, whose life the movie is based on. Yeah, well, it, yeah, his, and his book uh, about learning is, is amazing also. But there's a scene in there. You could take chess out and put any sport in. There's a scene in there yeah. where just what you were talking about, the diaper division, uh, Every these 10-year-old kids uh, are in this big, big room and behind every every kid is their dad and uh two of the dads get into a fight because uh, one of them says you're you're helping your kid and and so the guy running it takes them all downstairs they don't know where they're going and he locks them up in his cage and he comes back and it's just the kids and the kids start clapping they're just so they're so happy to have the dads gone I mean, that's, oh, they ask I mean you. That, that, that's funny that scene but that's really depressing right <laughs> because we've all seen that <laughs> For anyone who's, who's seen is. enough youth sports has seen that. Well, and, and so, you know, keep, keeping on with uh, John Waitzkin for a second, um, his mom in the movie, and I don't know how, you know, it's based on reality. I don't know how real everything is in the movie. But in uh, in the movie, he gets Gandhi as his coach, uh, Ben Kingsley, and he just takes the joy out of it. And his mom, um, you know, he, uh, you know, makes him stop having this uh, fancy coach so he can have fun in it um, with with chess. Where does joy come in to development as a better athlete? I mean, I think there are exceptions, right? I think there are some people who can be um, forced to do something and might come out successful, but I don't think that's the typical pattern. At this point uh, in in history, because sports, because pretty much anything has gone have, has gone global, and we've learned how activities work, things have gotten more competitive. Right? So, for the most part, people who want to get up to elite, no matter what they're doing, computer programmer or tennis player, 
they're in for a long, a long slog of, of skill development, right? And I think th the more that becomes true, the less likely it is that someone who can't find joy in the actual process of building their skills. That doesn't mean it's not. It doesn't mean it's not hard. It doesn't mean it's not painful. I mean, I was an 800 meter runner. You know, it's, there's a lot of painful things that aren't pleasant, but you do find some kind of joy in it, or you won't do it. And I think as as we've gotten more competitive, it's almost imperative to have that if you want somebody to stick with it for the long term. I mean, winning obviously is. There's a great paper by Rolf Carlson about Swedish tennis players, where he looks at the development pathways of a whole bunch of tennis players in Sweden, and, and like something like 10 of them go on to become top 15 in the world at one point or another. So he's got this really interesting sample set, and what he finds among the players that are deemed the most talented at first, they, they, they're usually just the early biological matures, basically, but they just kick everybody's butt you know, until they're 12 or 13, and then they have their first experience of loss, 14 or 15 years old, and they quit, mostly. They mostly just quit. <laughs> and so I think those are, those are people who were keeping going because winning is fun but didn't really have an inherent love of the sport. And so unless they are basically winning everything, I don't think they're going to keep up with that level of diligence, and they're certainly not going to be with the sport for life, which is, you know, an even bigger problem in my mind. There's a that reminds me, sorry, I'm doing kind of free association here, but Sean Sorensen at, at USC put out some work recently looking at the physical activity levels of Division I scholarship athletes across sports. And it used to be that Division I scholarship athletes would maintain a much higher physical activity level than the general population when they left college. And now they've gravitated back toward having the same abysmal level of physical activity as the American population. And he attributes some of that to this sort of uh, over-prescribed existence that they have when they're an athlete, and once and they never even knew really if they enjoyed the sport. They were kind of funneled to it, and when they get out, they don't have that, you know, every piece of the structure thought out for them, and they may not have uh, enjoyed that sport. They may have been playing a sport that's not a sport for life, like like football. Um, and and that's to me really really sad that people who are good enough to be Division One scholarship athletes are basically then becoming as sedentary as the rest of the population afterward, and that it wasn't always that way. I mean, to me, that's a huge, that's a huge coal mine canary. You know, I was, um, thank you for all that. Um, that was fantastic. Um, I really uh, got, I mean, I, I just, I love dogs. We had to put our, um, our longtime fantastic dog to sleep last November, and we got another dog now. And uh, so your your chapter in uh, the sports gene on sled dogs was just fascinating to me about, uh, you know, a dog who uh, only wants to Zorro's mom. What was, I forget, Zorro's mom, Lucy? No. Um, anyway, uh, all she wanted to do was pull, <laughs> pull the sled. Uh, oh, yeah, and yeah, yeah, Rosie, yeah, yeah. Rosie, yeah, yeah, um, and um, that that's you know it's transformed the, the dog racing thing. Um, the with with um, we we have a model called the triple impact competitor, someone who makes himself better, her teammates better, and the game better by the by the way they compete. And the the focus on themselves, effort, learning, bouncing back from mistakes, and the effort piece uh, we emphasize a lot. Although I, I'm nervous about coaches. Um, you know, taking effort and beating it over a kid's head. Um, but this idea of effort being a great equalizer and something that you can get out of sports um, seems to me a real, a real learning. A lot of kids, in my experience, 
have never really experienced trying hard until they they work in sports. They think they're trying hard at something, but um, you know when they're on a team and and they're trying to win, that's when they really feel what uh, great effort is like. And I wonder if you talk about effort and dogs and whatever comes to mind. Well, you know, I think you hit on something important there about not, you know young athletes not having been. Uh, faced with that same kind of challenge or or need to put forth that much effort because one great thing about sports is that it's so quantifiable, right? Like, and and even in a personal sense, like let's say you're working on, I don't know, free throw shooting or something like that, you you get instant feedback on whether you're doing it better or worse by where the ball goes. And that's that's really hard to recreate um, in in any other sector of life. It's hard to get that feedback that lets you know you know, you're just a little too far to the right or something like that. And in, in fact, some of the studies I write about in the book called the Groaning and Talent Studies where they tracked kids from age 12 all the way up to the pros in a variety of sports, or some of them got to the pros. Obviously, most of them didn't. There were, there were physical attributes that all those kids at age 12 already had, okay? So there were certain physical, like slow, slow kids never made fast adults. But there were behavioral attributes too, what they called self-regulatory behavior, which was not just leaning on their strengths. You know, everyone who's in business has maybe heard of the popularity of strengths finders, which is great. But what they found was that people finding their strength is actually more intuitive, and what they're not good at is finding their weaknesses. And these were the kids who worked on identifying their own weaknesses, where maybe they could already dribble a soccer ball well with their right foot, but didn't only use their right foot. They would challenge themselves to use the left. And they did this kind of iterative self-learning. And what they needed to do this was some kind of instant feedback. You know, they get to kick the ball to goal. It doesn't go in. They try something else. Does that work? And they were saying they, they've been making a pitch to change classrooms in the Netherlands because they find that this self-regulatory behavior is an incredible asset. But when these kids are in school and they take a test and then they get the, their score back a week later, it's like gone. Like there's nothing they can do with that. They need instant feedback to try to make that improvement uh, more quantifiable. And then they'll respond to that with greater effort. And so they've been advocating use some reversed classrooms where they can like read some information when they're at home and then they all do the homework when they're in class because then they can get this kind of instant feedback. And, you know, I think there's, you know, I think some people have, anybody who's ever been to training group knows some people need to be managed to, to train less and some people need to be managed to train more. So there, I think there are different levels of effort that come naturally to people, but I think there are a lot of things you can do to maximize uh, the effort that someone's willing to give. And I think a lot of that has to do with some mechanism that allows them to see if they're improving or not uh, and, and get this sort of instant feedback. And I think that's why sports can be this really wonderful thing because it's it, as hard as it is to see a cut-and-dry failure in some cases, that can be kind of the best thing for pushing you to, to a better effort. And, and everyone, no matter how good they are in sports, um, even LeBron James, you know, sometimes sometimes fails at something. So I think it's it's an area where – it can in some ways demand um, extreme effort that you can't get that, or that's very difficult to do in other places in life. And I think it's no surprise that when I've had a chance to talk to some people in the business community this year, again, another surprising outcome of my book, they talk about how much they like to hire college athletes because they feel they're better at kind of self-directed learning. Um, and I, I don't think that's a big surprise. I hope we don't I hope we don't take that away by scripting everything for athletes so intensely that they don't have to learn how to direct their self-development. I know that didn't have anything to do with dogs, but I can talk about dogs a little too. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. You know, I uh, the thing about joy and effort, um, you know, I, I um, 
both the, the Cleveland Cavaliers and the uh, Golden State Warriors have been big supporters of Positive Coaching Alliance, and uh, so it was like a, a no lose for me in the finals. Um, <laughs> I, I, I did, I did, uh, I enjoyed the joy that I that I saw coming out of the Warriors. Now, of course, you know they had a, a, a magical season and they ended up winning it all, um, but there just seemed to be a joy, and I. I attribute uh, some of that, maybe even a lot of it, to Steve Kerr, the coach, who has kind of a light touch. And can you talk a little bit about um, coaching? You know, if if, um, if youth coaches, high school and youth coaches, were going to learn uh, everything they could learn from your work, this book, and the other other things you've written, uh, how would you have them behave to help uh, kids uh, develop the best they could? Well, so, so let's start with the Warriors, and I agree with you about Steve Kerr. Um, and and you know, I think sometimes those guys who, who weren't necessarily the very best player ever make make the best coaches because performing and coaching are very very different things. Because um, when they perform, this is stuff that's in the automated part of the brain, and so it's it's uh, no wonder that Michael Jordan wasn't the best mentor when he was just telling people to do it better. Sometimes, like with Kwame Brown. Mm-hmm. But if, I don't know if you've, you're aware, but the Golden Golden State sometimes in pregame or practice, they're like shooting full court shots or close to full court shots, and they'll play around doing that. Um, and it's like a sanctioned part of practice. It's not deemed to be wasting time, you know, because most teams, they'll start practice with very basics, which is really interesting to see that elites are always going back over the basics. Um, but at the same time, they incorporate this fun stuff. I think no matter what level an athlete's at, they are self-conscious when they're performing. They're in front of tons of people. I mean, anyone who's spent a lot of time with college athletes knows that they like check Twitter to see what people say about them, and it can become paralyzing either feeling like, you know, you need to shoot more or you need to shoot less because you're missing. And what you really want to do is is be unselfconscious and just be absorbed in the game. And I think part of what Kerr has his guys doing, you know, taking these crazy shots is both fun and also sort of takes away a little bit of that self-consciousness, that little bit of that prefrontal cortex that makes you think about what if you fail, that paralysis by analysis. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. It sets a fun tone. And it's, I think it's with a, with a fun tone where you can really maximize implicit learning, that, that learning like a baby, that phase where you want to learn with the back of your brain, the primitive parts that do skills automatically, where you can't necessarily articulate everything, it, everything you have to do to execute a jump shot, but your body knows it, right? Have you ever had the experience of you want to type a phone number, you, maybe you can't remember it, but once, you're, once you can put your fingers on the keyboard, you can do it, right? Like people who can type probably can't write out where every letter on the keyboard is on a piece of paper. And yet as soon as they put their hands on the keyboard, they can hit every key they want. So that's something that's learned implicitly in that automated part of the brain that's much more choke resistant and that you can execute things much faster. And so if I were to to give some advice to coaches, it would be to build in a little more time for that implicit learning and to then to maximize the repetitions in there by compressing the game. So, so you know, if you go to Brazil, one one surprise for me is that uh, the kids aren't playing soccer, they're all playing futsal, um, which is this, like, compressed form of soccer. Like, they'll play in, in, a, in a street, just an area the width of a street, and they're closed in, and there's walls around them, and the ball is smaller and kind of heavy so it doesn't come in the air. And so there's no wallflowers in futsal. All the kids are tightly grouped around the ball at basically all times and always making anticipatory decisions about which body's going where, where do they have to angle, and so it's basically like soccer in a phone booth. And so they get about six times as many reps in every aspect of the game. 
as they do on a full-size soccer field. And so I think that's a great way to facilitate um, implicit learning is to, to have sort of a game environment, but to compress it. You know, it's like taking flashcards really fast. And I think there's a lot of, a lot of power to that. You know, and, and again, speaking to self-regulatory behavior, it sets up more reps. There's more and more and more feedback. Um, you know, that's, and that's something I would do. I think there's no, no surprise that it, it, every country that's a soccer power pretty much, except for the Netherlands, which I think has done a great job with their sports science and made up for some of the, the lack of futsal, uh, all the best players, Messi, Ronaldo, they've all grown up on futsal as, a, as opposed to soccer, really. You know, um, sometimes that, those, those fun games at the beginning of practice pay off, too. Uh, Steph Curry hit a 60-yard uh, uh, 60-foot shot against the Grizzlies, uh, ending the third quarter, which just kind of crushed the Grizzlies in the in the second round. So um, uh, sometimes the fun, fun stuff <laughs> pays off. <clears throat> yeah, no, that's that's uh, that's fabulous stuff. Um, so coaches, um, I mean, one of the things you said there is to to leave some time for fun and implicit learning. Um, the I, I've been it's it's been interesting to watch. Uh, I'm, I'm involved with a, or, uh, an effort now called Safer Soccer, which is trying to get um, headers banned at the early ages of sports. And there's a lot of resistance among it, um, among you know the the powers that be. And it reminds me of the small-sided games when when people were first talking about bringing small-sided games to to soccer. Um, you know, there was like, no, no, you got to have the full complement. These kids are seven years old, but they got to be playing on a full size field, full size field. And it, it, it's just, it's interesting how long some innovations take to. Um, they're obviously good for for kids, even if all you want is for players to, you know, grow up to be champions, so the United States can look good in the Olympics. Um, it still takes a long time for those innovations to come through. Yeah, I mean, and, and futsal, you know, now that you mention it, another bonus is that there's basically no headers. The ball's always on the ground. So, you know, I think maybe, uh, never mind the health, you know, I've, I've, to some degree, I'm disappointed with the response to um, health information in sports, right? Like, it's clear that that alone, I don't think, gets people to change their behavior for the most part. But I think there's a, you know, a two plus two equals more than four if you compare that with a skill development message. So here we have the game. It happens to be the developmental tool for most of the best players, you know, in, in history. And it also happens to not have many headers. So I think you can be a, it can be a double win there. And, and the compressed field, I mean, I mean, if you, if you look at the, the body of literature looking at that, in some ways it's a no-brainer. I, I saw a really cool presentation um, when I got to speak at this coaches' conference before the U.S. Open. And a gentleman there gave a presentation showing what how you'd have to change the ball and the court um, to make different ages of youth tennis players simulate the pro game. So right, so the idea that playing on the full pro court is the best simulation for youth athletes of the pro game is complete nonsense. So he, he was showing that when you when they play on the full court, the game is at certain ages it's completely dominated by errors. Like no one's really scoring points through through deft shots, it's all just keeping the ball in play until the other person makes an error. But then when you change it, it was like, I think it was something like 85% of points were errors and 15% were, were skilled shots. Whereas when you change it so that the, the speed of the ball and the bounce height of the ball you know, and, the, and, the, and the height of the net 
are proportional to those kids, they much more mimic uh, the ratio in pro tennis, which is like 80% scored on skill and 20% errors or something like that. So if you really actually want to simulate what they'll be facing, you, you don't want them to be uh, playing on the, on the full-size uh, space. You know, uh, we were talking earlier about uh, too early specialization. Um, Positive Coaching Alliance, we we did about 1,800 live workshops around the country, uh, many of them for parents this past year. And uh, the number one thing uh, parents uh, raise at these at these talks and workshops is their 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 son or daughter is being pressured to specialize. Um, and, you know, there's lot, lots of evidence coming now of, you know, if you look at professional athletes, most of them didn't specialize in a sport until they were at least in high school, sometimes even beyond that. What can we do, uh, what's the argument, and what can we do to stiffen the backbones of parents who are being approached by, I would call them sports entrepreneurs, who are, uh, you know, they're making a living, which is great, making a living uh, with that their sport, but they're, they have an economic interest in getting kids to specialize in their sport early on. What can we do to stiffen the backbone of parents to not put their kids into a specialized environment too soon? Yeah, I mean, the, the, really the only thing I can think of is, and again, this is actually where I did have purpose with the books. I added an afterward about this, is to show them that uh, the actual skill-building literature suggests they should be doing the opposite. So. For, you mentioned specializing in, in high school. I think there's just about to be some data out about scholarship athletes at UCLA who specialized, I think it was age 15.6, where they started to focus in on one sport, um, whereas on average, and some later, some a little bit earlier, whereas the students who who didn't make it uh, to, to that level were specializing at like 14.3. So it was more, you know, almost a, a year and a half earlier. And I think that we need to keep emphasizing that that evidence you know, forget about the overuse injuries. Like, I just don't believe that parents will listen to that. But there's a, but there's a skill development message here, right? And it's, it's never. And I blame my peers in the media a lot. Are you a baseball fan? Oh sure, you bet. So, did you know last year the playoffs? So Lorenzo Cain, who would have been the playoffs MVP had the Royals won the World Series, did not play a game of organized baseball until he was 16 years old. Right? Had no idea. Did not play. Which is, of course, because nobody highlights it. All they highlight is the story where they ask an athlete, like, how much did you practice? Oh, I practiced a ton. Well, of course you did. Of course they did. And when they look at that as a cross-sectional observation, but what's the actual developmental pathway, right? That's, it's, not, it's not what's portrayed by the media. Like what we do, what my colleagues do is take someone who's on the gold medal stand, ask them if they trained a lot, and of course they trained a lot, and then, you know, take their, their explanation of cause and effect, you know, what worked for them, which, of course... Just because you're a bird doesn't mean you're an ornithologist. Like the athletes, we have science because people can't correctly explain the cause and effect of their own personal narrative. So you have to look at the longitudinal science. And it says that this kind of broad exposure, not saying they shouldn't be involved in a sport, but that being an athlete first is, is more important than focusing in on a particular sport. I mean, Steve Nash didn't own a basketball until he was 13. Normal-sized guy, so he's a good example, went on to become two-time NBA MVP. Roger Federer's parents literally forced him to continue playing badminton, uh, basketball, and soccer before he could specialize, focus in on tennis. Uh, again, at that, at that tennis coaches conference, I saw a presentation from Andy and Jamie Murray's uh, mother, and she has a yep. camp, a tennis camp, where kids you know, 
parents bring their kids and, and they pay a bunch of money and they can and she can train them. And it was so funny because her training basically consists of games that Jamie and Andy played that are very uh, athlete directed, not coach directed. So to, to me, it looked like her system is because she's the she's the mother of Andy Murray. People will pay her um, to. Uh, give permission for their child to do some implicit learning and play, basically. And that, that's so she's getting like paid not to, not to, not, she's getting paid not to control their experience, basically. Exactly. And I mean, she sets up these interesting drills and again compresses the game, which I think is great. But she sets it up so that it's, it's user driven. You know, in, in some ways, I think one goal for a coach, in addition to helping someone find that vision of future self that makes putting in all the work worthwhile. Um, and I have a high school coach who, who did a great job for me in that. Um, they they want to become irrelevant in a way as the learner develops, so that they can take over some of their own self-directed development. And um, that that might not be nice because maybe they have to step back a little. But I I do think that that's that's part of what great coaches do is they help someone become their own learner ultimately. Um, there's this what I'm about to ask you about is has different names. I've I've learned about it as teaching games through for understanding. And I think it came from Australia, New Zealand area, and the idea is um, instead of telling kids what the right thing to do is, uh, give them some experience, just like you were talking earlier. And I, I used to coach basketball, and there's a, you know, I was raised, there's a way to break a two-to-one press, or uh, I'm sorry, two-to-one fast break or three-to-two fast break. And I always used to tell you know, the two kids on, on defense, here's where you go when the ball moves, and the three kids on offense. And then when I was introduced to this concept of teaching games through understanding, um, I said, you three kids, you're on offense. Get together, figure out what you're going to do. You two kids on defense. And then we'd play a bunch. And they just they just do it. And then we'd, then we'd stop, and I would say, uh, well, what did you learn? Talk it out. Talk it around. Now, what do you what did you learn that you different? And the the learning just went way up because I wasn't just forcing them into doing it a certain way. Um, and then there's also research I think it says if you say something and someone else nods their head as opposed to they say it themselves, they're much more likely to internalize it. You know, and that that sounds to me kind of like Socratic method of teaching sports skills. You know, and and I'm a I'm a fan of Socratic method of teaching because it. It, uh, I think it gives the learner some ownership over what they're learning. It sounds like that's what you were doing, basically. You knew the answer, but you were taking them along. You know, you knew the answer, but you, you got to experience your own developmental pathway. And so instead of stealing the development from them and just telling them how it should work, if it, if it were easy to tell people how to have certain sports skills, like <laughs> we could just – they wouldn't have to show up every day for however many years, you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um David, this has been fa- fabulous. Um, anything, um, anything for youth coaches, parents, athletes that you would uh, like to say that I haven't asked you about? Uh, that's a good question. You know, the interestingly, the people who I've found to be the least resistant to the idea of diversifying sports early on are people who were elite athletes themselves. Um, yeah. So I was talking to, to Summer Schloppy, some, formerly Summer Sanders, you know, one of the all-time great U.S. Uh, swimmers. Yeah, she's and she on, was complaining. She's involved. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, great. I was going to say she's she on our national advisory board also. Oh, cool. And and she was talking about how uh, one of her kids has a coach who like insists that her her child specialize in a certain way, and she'll go up to the coach and say, you know, that's not what I want for my kid. It's not what I did. Um, and the coach is like, nope, this is what it is. 
And so it's, it, you'd think like sometimes coaches would have a little more self-awareness when they're, they're talking to like one of the all-time great American athletes, thinking like, you know what, maybe they have something to add to this conversation. Um, but it, 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 it's difficult. So I think, you know, I, I would advocate for parents just getting, um, you know, thinking maybe a little bit outside of uh, what the local coach is telling them. It's really, really difficult. Because you, the long-term pathway, you might see another kid getting a short-term advantage, or the coach might be kind of draconian about it and say, if you don't play only my sport, you just can't be on the team, even if they're good enough, right? And that's, that's a huge problem. And I don't know, I, I mean, in my opinion, we're still, our trajectory is still in the wrong direction. We haven't started to sort of slow down and turn the ship. Um, you know, and so I, I would hope that parents can, can hopefully start to get the idea that this is also a skill acquisition uh, message, not just a health message or not just a feel-good, you know, treat your children nice, not there's anything wrong with that, too. Um, and it's going to take cultural change because, boy, it's, it's a big issue and, and we're not doing very well on it, unfortunately. But that's why I'm glad, you know, there are folks like us who can hopefully hopefully start to slow that ship down a little bit, I hope. You know, there's some uh, research done by a doc at uh, Stanford Medical School on looking at uh, overweight kids and trying to get them involved with sports. And one of the things they, he discovered is that if, if these overweight kids are put in with uh, other kids who are like normal, uh, you know, pretty good athletes, they they get discouraged and they quit. If they're put in a bunch uh, in with a bunch of other overweight kids, they just have a fabulous time playing soccer or whatever the sport is. And I think there's a, a parallel here that um, we need. And, and Tom Ferry with ESPN, who's heading up the, the project play from Aspen Institute, one of the ideas is that having um, you know sure elite programs and travel teams have their place, but we need the the rec league where kids can just go out and play with other kids who are just going out and playing, having fun. And then some of those kids will evolve, as you said earlier, to be really good athletes. But sometimes when you put, uh, just like putting those uh, overweight kids in with other kids, they feel funny. If you put kids who are just kind of learning the sport with kids who have had so much training already, it's, uh, it's a little discouraging. So I think we really need um, different levels so kids can plug in wherever they want. Yeah, I mean, if we want if, if we want to have some reality to all the the good, you know, teaching components that we we say sports have, I think we have to make them less exclusionary. I, I love the last generation model of European clubs where sports weren't all focused around school. There were local clubs that both parents and their children could go to and compete. Anyone from any level, any age could go and compete. Regional competitions, things like that. Didn't didn't really need to travel because frankly you don't need to travel to find better competition for eight year olds. It's kind of silly and it just takes too much time. Um, and I love that club model uh, where it's where it's kind of a range of ages and 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 for the kids who are really good athletes they get to be around someone who's better than them and and sort of see how that person operates. And for the other kids they can do a little little bit of self sorting and the 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 club is a, has a social aspect and so I think if if basically our system is entirely post elementary school entirely based on sort of exclusionary systems, you know, no wonder we're not producing a lot of athletes for life. The other thing, the other advantage when you get parents involved is they uh, they realize how hard it actually is to do what they're yelling at their kids to do. Uh, <laughs> I, 
I took a, I took a baseball coaching workshop some years ago, and the guys who did it were just brilliant. <clears throat> and they had us, you know, doing exercises. And we did a, a relay uh, drill. There were three three of us in a line, and I would throw to the guy in the middle. He would pivot and throw it to that guy who'd throw it back. He'd pivot, and everybody nobody missed a, missed the throw. Everything was going great. And then they said, okay, now we're going to have a competition. And uh, they were like. 10 or 12 groups of threes, and he said, okay, the slowest two will drop out, and then the next two, and we'll see who the winner is. And the ball started going all over the place. That pressure, that little bit of pressure um, was, you know, just totally destroyed performance. And I think if if parents can get a little bit of of that and remember, uh, you know, this kid's trying to hit a ball off a tee, and it looks so easy to you because you're 40 years old. Um, Yeah. Um, yeah, David, easy, right? Like everybody's a Monday morning quarterback. Oh, if they'd only done this, like, well, easier to <laughs> yeah. easier to say. David, this has been fantastic. I just, I really appreciate it. Um, you know, we're going to do our best to get this out to as many people as possible, and um, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. That's my pleasure. This is an issue I'm I care about more and more as I as time goes on. So I, I, I'm happy you're doing what you're doing. Thanks for joining us on this episode of PCA One-on-One. Be sure to visit PositiveCoach.org to download more podcasts.